Good morning once again. It's good to have you here at Hope and Anchor. It's been a, it's just a joy to celebrate in things like worship, uh, in baptism, uh, but but be able to uh, pray together and to go to God's Word together and find that uh, the truth of God is revealed uh, in in His Word. Uh, in the Holy Spirit's work among us. And I'm glad that we get to travel this uh, journey together, that we get to grow and celebrate what Christ has done for us and what Christ is doing in us uh, together. So what a privilege, what a gift. Uh, this morning we are starting a brand new teaching series. We finished up Our Father after who knows how many weeks that was. Uh, but we are starting a new teaching series that's part of an older teaching series we did called Everyday People. Everyday people. Uh, this is just kind of a continuation of that, uh, uh, of that looking through Scripture and finding those, those people that played important parts that sometimes uh, they were just kind of called out of obscurity and they stepped into what God had for them and it made all the difference. It made all the difference in the world. So uh, we're going to do that today. Uh, this is week number one and today's message is called History. History. Did anyone do weird things during the lockdown? Uh, for example, or more specifically, did anyone go back to school during the lockdown because you had all this extra time on your hand? Um, I had a brief foray into going back to school uh, because we're sitting around and we're kind of at home and online education is there. And so during the 2020 lockdown summer, uh, I started taking an online course, uh, a, a certificate program in ancient and classical history. It was fairly short-lived, but I started nonetheless. Uh, and I was taking a class called graduate, hey, you know you've done that too. <laughs> you started things and not finished them, it's, it's fine. All right. Uh, anyway, I was taking a class called graduate seminar in world history. Graduate seminar in world history. Uh, now, if you've done online courses, you know what is uh, referred to as death by discussion board. Anyone else suffered from the death by discussion board? Yeah, it's the worst. Well, in the midst of that usual death by discussion board, um, I was struck by a few things in this course uh, pretty quickly, really right off the bat. First, I realized that I don't know as much as I'd like about history. I don't claim to be an expert on world history. So uh, the second thing I noticed is that there is more to learning history than simply becoming familiar with what happened in the past. Did you know this? There's more to learning and studying history than simply uh, knowing the sequence of what happened in the past, knowing the succession of one thing happening after the other. But that's kind of what I thought it was. That's kind of what I thought history was, just remembering dates, times, and places, right? And the people that were important, right? But there's more to it. There is a difference, get this, there is a difference between studying the history of the world and studying world history. Did you know this? There's a difference between studying the history of the world and studying world history. Studying the history of the world is what most of us are familiar with. Uh, it is learning the names, the dates, the places of, import, of important events in the story of mankind. Uh, important battles, important uh, conquests, important rises and falls of empires, things like that. But studying world history is a different thing altogether. Studying world history is more about understanding global relationships. Global relationships between cultures and civilizations. So it's kind of like stepping back, it's that, it's that macro history, kind of seeing the larger patterns, the larger cycles that have played out over and over again throughout human history. Uh, the aim of world history is to identify broad patterns of human development across cultures. 
Okay, broad patterns of human development across cultures. So this is the difference between studying the history of the world and actually stepping back and studying world history. So this was like a light bulb going off, like I never knew this. I never understood this. Now the third thing I learned or discovered or re realized was that um, there are historians who have shaped the way we understand our history. There are historians that shaped the way that we understand who we are and how we got here and what our past actually means. Okay, there, there again, remember, what our past, what happened in the past versus what that past actually means. What's the significance of these things that happened? And these people, uh, these historians, uh, who you've likely never heard of, but who have, uh, they have massively contributed to our framework of understanding history. And more than that, really shaping our understanding of history, of economics, and sociology. Um, the two guys I'm thinking of, um, they informed our thinking about the philosophy of history probably more than any others in the last century. Oswald Spengler and Arnold Toynbee. Has anyone ever heard of those two guys? Okay, they were to world history, uh, kind of an analog here would be, they are to world history as Keynes and Hayek were to uh, macroeconomics. I don't know if you're familiar with that those two guys, but they kind of spring out of history and you realize they made a huge contribution. So Oswald Spengler and Arnold Toynbee, these guys are considered titans, titans of the systematizing of world history and of how we understand the larger patterns and dynamics of which we are all part. Uh, like I said, their, their field was kind of to uh, bring attention to macro history. Uh, the life cycles of civilizations is kind of the phrase that would be used. Like, civilizations have a life cycle. And they help us understand this. So Oswald Spengler and Arnold Toynbee. Now, they were both working in the 20th century, and they both were seeking to better convey the telos, or the, the, the ultimate object or aim of history, believing that history has an ultimate object. That there is an, an ultimate aim to history and to the nature of civilization itself. Now, I was interested in this unexpectedly. I didn't get into studying ancient and classical history to learn about Arnold uh, Toynbee and Oswald Spengler. Believe it or not, I wanted to learn more about the Greeks. I wanted to learn more about the Romans. Uh, I wanted to learn more about the early world into which uh, Christianity was birthed and spread. But here I am learning about two guys from the 20th century that help us just understand more about macro history, the point, the object of history itself and the nature of civilization. Interestingly, I had never previously heard of these guys. You might be saying, what? Are you telling the truth? I am. I had never heard about these guys. Look, I have studied recreation and leisure studies, never came across these guys, um, Christian ministry, and biblical counseling. Never once did we talk about Arnold Toynbee. Never once did we talk about Oswald Spangler. But these guys are really important, and I'm glad I came across them. They are important. They uh, made really important contributions, and they really changed the conversation about what it means to be part of this human project, this, this living out of, of civilization in our world. These men shaped the way that we think about history and how history is remembered. So, likewise, when we go to Scripture, we find uh, there are people 
who've been operating behind the scenes. There, there are people that were important in the story of God. They played this small part, but important part, in the grand narrative of the Bible. Their contributions are sometimes overlooked because they were called out of obscurity, they were thrust into the spotlight for a brief time, and then they retreated back into history. Previously, we studied the life and experiences of an obscure Moabitess who was a widow named Ruth, right? We studied Ruth along with her, her mother-in-law named and her boo, Boaz, right? Um, she was a good example of, of just an everyday person, right? I mean, uh, she had no reputation. She was pretty obscure, but she was called out of obscurity uh, into the spotlight of what God was doing. She was called to live into the story of God in the world and to become a witness to God's covenant faithfulness and to absolutely change history. She changed history. If you recall, because of Ruth's faithfulness, she became the ancestor of King David, yes, but even more so the ancestor of who? Of Jesus himself. So if you look at the genealogies that are preserved at the end of Ruth, uh, Ruth 4, uh, and then uh, Matthew chapter 1, we see this play out. Boaz and Ruth, they show up. And it's the genealogy of not just King David and Solomon, but it leads us to Jesus. But Ruth is not the only everyday people, the everyday person used in Scripture by God. She's not the only ordinary per person who God chose to step up at just the right time, uh, who God chose to, to help demonstrate something of His character and to affect real change, to affect something of His will in the world. I mean, you get the sense that Ruth didn't really understand the full gravity of what she was accomplishing, but I think Gideon might have. So another person, like I said, we're going to talk about is Gideon. He springs to mind when I think about these everyday people, just normal people going about their life who are called by God to do something amazing. So Gideon, Gideon, the son of Joash, the son of Joash from the family of Abiezer, or Abiezer, uh, we read about his story in Judges chapter 6 through 8. Now, anyone who spent time in Sunday school as a child, I guarantee you heard about Gideon. You heard about Gideon and what? The fleece and Gideon and the the torches in the pot, right? They hold the yeah, crazy. We hear those stories. If you spend time in Sunday school, you heard the story of Gideon and the fleece and Gideon and the torches in the pots. But as adults, if your experience has been like mine, you've likely not heard as much about Gideon. You've not spent as much time attending to his life and what God did through him. Who was Gideon? Gideon was a judge of Israel. He was uh, instrumental in calling Israel once again away from idol worship, away from the worship of Baal and Asherah, and back to the worship of the one true God. As you read Gideon's story, one gets the sense that Gideon was not at first eager to be used by God. Do you know this about it? He's not like, sweet, I've been waiting for, you know, to be called up from the minor leagues. Thanks, God. No, he's not too stoked about this idea, right? You get this sense that he's not too excited, not too enthusiastic about uh, being used by God. He, he doesn't desire the spotlight, and he doesn't, at least in his understanding or his estimation, does not possess an unassailable or bomb-proof faith. 
Now, this isn't to say that he didn't have courage or he didn't have leadership ability or that he didn't have some form of solid faith. He just didn't quite believe. He didn't quite believe that God could use him. He simply wasn't living up to his potential and he wasn't ready to rise to the occasion in the life of Israel. So, as the scene opens in Gideon's story, the curtain is raised on some very dark days in Israel. Once again, it's a dark time, a difficult time in the land of Israel. God's people, they are hiding from their enemies. They are having their crops and their livestock routinely raided and stolen by a people called the Midianites. Israel has been reduced to starvation. They have been reduced to living in fear and once again crying out to God. And as such, we find Gideon, just like the rest of Israel, hiding. We find Gideon hiding where? In the bottom of a wine press. He's in the bottom of a wine press, threshing his wheat, and he's just like Israel. He's living in fear, and he's always looking over his shoulder. He's always on guard. And you know how exhausting that is, don't you? Man, when you're just living in fear, and you're always on guard, you're always on alert, whew, that's exhausting. Now, I know, you know, you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. That's what you're thinking right now. You're like, why would he be threshing his wheat? I mean, when I thresh my wheat, I do it on a hilltop, right? You know about threshing wheat, just like me. But here's the thing to notice. Wheat is not supposed to be threshed in the bottom of a wine press. Why? Because a wine press relies on what? Gravity, right? A threshing floor relies on what? Wind. It's not very windy in wine presses, right? Wine presses are depressions. Wine presses are sunken into the ground. They are positioned for the collection of juice as you crush the grapes. Gravity draws it down for collection. And here we find Gideon threshing his wheat, doing the most unlikely of activities in the most unlikely of places. Why? Fear. He's afraid. He doesn't want to get found out because he knows what the Midianites will do because that's what the Midianites have done. They've come and they've taken everything. They've stolen. They've ruined everything. And so here he is hiding down in the ground, threshing his wheat. How frustrating had that, was that? How frustrating must it have been to be threshing your wheat in a place that was not good for threshing wheat? That would be super frustrating. Wheat is threshed on hilltops where the breeze can come and carry away the, the hulls, carry away the chaff as the kernels are tossed in the air. You toss it in the air and the lighter pieces float away while the kernels fall back to the ground. But Gideon is hiding. He's threshing his wheat in darkness. He's threshing his wheat in depths of despair and frustration in a wine press. Let's turn to Judges chapter 6 and, and get started in this story. Let's today look at verses 1 through 13. Judges chapter 6. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. 
These enemy hordes, coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. And he said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you now live. But you have not listened to me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezar. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. And Gideon replied, Sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. So, verses 1 through 6, we read that, uh, well, kind of a background of what's going on in, in Israel. This is Israel's fourth falling away just in the book of Judges. Okay, this is the first time they've fallen away and fallen into hard times and punishment, uh, fallen away from the worship of God that we read about in the book of Judges. And now Israel finds herself beset by an invading people called the Midianites. They were a desert-dwelling, uh, they were desert-dwelling descendants of Abraham, but also of a man named Keturah. And they were living south to the south of Palestine. And for seven years, Seven years the Midianites had been marauding, marauding all across Israel's land, helping themselves to all the crops they could find, all the livestock they could find, uh, and they were just creating general havoc. Havoc, no one could rest. Everyone's on pins and needles, everyone's on the run. Israel felt helpless in the face of this invading force, and they had taken to living in mountain clefts and caves to escape the danger and to simply save their lives. This indeed was a time of judgment upon Israel by God, and God was using the Midianites. God was using the Midianites. So severe, we read here, that so severe was the oppression, so severe was the harassment and destruction that it's compared by the writer to a plague of locusts. Has anyone ever seen a, a real plague of locusts? Let me tell you, neither have I. But it's bad. I've seen a bunch of grasshoppers, and I've seen video of it. It's just they come, and there's just zillions of them, which, and they just eat everything. They ruin crops. They destroy livelihoods. They just strip the land bare. And the writer of Judges is saying, look, this is what it was like for Israel when the, the, the Midianites came over and over again. They stripped everything bare and left nothing behind. They left nothing. He refers to them as a plague of locusts because they are devouring the land. They are devouring the people and devouring all their belongings. It has become a bleak and desperate time in Israel. And Israel was impoverished. They had become impoverished at how many levels? They had become impoverished by their disobedience at every level you can think of. Economic, uh, uh, physical, spiritual. They were impoverished. In their desperation and misery, 
In her desperation and misery, Israel finally reawakens to her need for God and cries out once again to him for help and deliverance. So then you continue from verse 7. You find that they cried out to the Lord because of Midian. They cried out, and guess what? God heard them. God listened. God was still attentive despite their disobedience and their hard-heartedness. He still was paying attention to His people. God's judgment upon disobedience and idolatry is not surprising. His punishment upon disobedience and idolatry should not have been surprising upon Israel. It makes you wonder, why did they wait so long? They waited seven years to cry out to God. Seven years. Man, I hope I wouldn't wait that long. But maybe I would. I'm no better, no smarter than the Israelites. It took them so long. They had to reach such a level of desperation and despair before they said, Oh, I've got an idea. Maybe we could ask God for help. What do you think? Let's take a vote. You know, they're like, Maybe we should ask God to help us. And so they cry out. So anyway, God's judgment upon disobedience and idolatry is not surprising. It should not be surprising. But what is surprising is that even after seven years, even though this is the fourth time they've fallen away, when Israel cried out to God, guess what happened? God actually listened, and God desired to respond. He wanted to. You always get the sense like, oh, finally, finally, Israel, finally you woke up. He's eager to respond. So he sends them a prophet. He, God sends a prophet to Israel, reminding them of their history. A key event in their history. What? I am the one who delivered you out of Egypt. This is like the baseline story element in Israel's life. Remember, I delivered you out of the hands of Egypt. So the prophet comes, reminds them of their history, and rebukes them for their idolatry rebukes them for their unfaithfulness, like, hey, I, I brought you into this land. I gave it to you. I delivered you, set you free. I blessed you so much. And all I said was, don't worship idols. And what did you do? You worshiped idols. That's what you do. You worship idols. Again, he rebukes them for that. Here's the thing. Despite everything that had happened... Despite all their idolatry and unfaithfulness, Israel was still God's chosen people. God had not forgotten about them. And as you know, because they were God's chosen people, God loved them. And what does God do for those He loves? He disciplines. As we read in Hebrews 12, 6, God disciplines those He loves. We don't like that experience, right? But man, as a parent, I'm, I understand that. Sometimes you have to do things your kids don't like in order to bring correction, in order to bring growth, and to enable them to discover freedom in a more healthy and mature way of living. God disciplines those He loves. So just as God had delivered Israel from Egypt out of love, He was punishing Israel through Midian out of that same love. Did you make that connection? God says, because I loved you, I delivered you. Because I love you, I delivered you from Egypt. And as hard as, a, as bitter of a pill it is to swallow, because I love you, I sent Midian to bring you to this point. I mean, this, this storyline plays out all, all through the Old Testament, that Israel has to suffer so that they will come back to faithfulness in God. And it's out of love. God sent a prophet to Israel, and then God sent an angel to Gideon. 
Now Gideon was a young man from the tribe of Manasseh who is found threshing his wheat in hiding. Threshing his wheat, making his livelihood in a wine press, in a pit in the ground. And the angel addresses Gideon, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Now the angel's words seem a little odd because they're spoken to this timid uh, Gideon who's in hiding, right? Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Uh, likewise, Gideon challenges the validity uh, in verse 13 of what the angel says. It's like, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. And you can almost see Gideon looking over his shoulder like, oh, oh, really? Really? God is with me, huh? God is with me? Where? God is with me? God is with us? How? Is this God with us? What in the actual world? This, is, this doesn't look right. If God is with us, I think things would be a little different. See, God, Gideon's a little incredulous at the words of the angel. As you and I would probably be. It's like, mighty hero, threshing your wheat in hiding in the ground. The Lord is with you. He's like, wow. That... That seems like the exact opposite of who I am. Seems like the exact opposite of the situation in which we find ourselves. Good talk, angel. Gideon was downtrodden. That's a good word, downtrodden. Been trampled by life. He, being in the bottom of a wine press, was a good metaphor for where he was emotionally, where he was spiritually, where he was just psychologically, mentally, everything. He was just downtrodden. He was in a low place. He was downtrodden. He was convic convinced of God's rejection. He had been living in fear of the Midianites, and he had been dwelling in the shadow of defeat. In seven years is plenty of time to start believing some pretty unhealthy, some pretty destructive and inaccurate things about yourself, about God, and about what He might be willing to do in your life. He had come to believe it. He was living in the shadow of defeat. But here, anyway, God comes through His angel and says, Hey, mighty hero, mighty hero, knowing in advance what the future held for Gideon. I mean, that's just how it is. God comes and speaks something into your life that you can't even imagine yet. But he knows, God has seen the end of all things. He's seen all the days of your life lived already. And he knows what the future holds for you, just as he knows what the future held for Gideon and for Israel. And just to be honest, as I read the story of Gideon, and as I hear Gideon's words, I kind of get him. I, I, I get Gideon. Anyone else? You're like, I know what that feels like. I've never threshed wheat. I've never been in a wine press. I've never threshed wheat in a wine press. Maybe you haven't either. But I get Gideon. Somehow when he says this, I'm like, yeah, I know how that feels. I, feel, I know what being downtrodden, being discouraged, living in the shadow of defeat, I know what that kind of feels like. So I get Gideon. I hear a little bit of myself in his words. I see my attitude and my outlook on life reflected in his. Uh, maybe a bit too discouraged. Maybe starting from a place of pessimism too much of the time. Has anyone else fall into that, that pit, into that trap before? Man, we can't really see what God might do because we're so convinced 
of our situation. We're, we're so convinced that we're rejected by God or that God can't come or He won't come and fix whatever's wrong. I easily find myself moping around. I find myself uh, threshing my metaphorical wheat <laughs> uh, in metaphorical wine presses. I, I find myself threshing my wheat in hiding. I, I find myself sitting in darkness, cursing the light because of circumstances. And the circumstances for me are fear, frustration, anger, defeat, anxious thoughts. Now, I don't know what it is for you, but I think I covered a lot of the bases there. We know what that feels like. So when God sends his prophet to remind and rebuke Israel, and when God sends his angel to raise up Gideon, something about it surprises me. Just like it surprised Gideon. And it also confronts me. It challenges me. It makes me... It awakens me to the possibility that just perhaps, just perhaps, God has not given up on me. God has not given up on us. Just like He's not given up on Israel, He's not given up on Gideon, maybe He's not given up on me. Maybe He's not given up on us. And this is encouraging. Maybe He can use me too. Maybe He can use you too, despite what you become convinced of, this, despite your circumstances or situation. What if God wanted to come and say, hey, Mighty warrior, mighty hero, I can use you. I've got plans for you. How slow would we be to come around to believe that? Well, this is good for me, this story. Maybe God hasn't given up on me, and maybe He can use me too. So let's all pay attention here. Let's all pay attention. Yes, hold fast to this truth. Disobedience and idolatry is offensive to God. Disobedience and idolatry, it is offensive to God, and it is destructive to His people. It always has been. It always will be. It's offensive to God and it's destructive to His people. God punishes us in His divine, His divine judgment. But it is always out of deep love for us. And, about, and it's always out of His desire to grow us and to set us free from sin. We can always trust that this is God's motivation. It is love for us and a desire to forgive us, to heal us, and to set us free from the effects of sin. So even when Israel was mired in sin once again, when Israel cried out to God, he was eager to hear and respond. How encouraging is that? Contemplate the words that we find in verses 6 through 8, when it says, Then the Israelites cried out to God for help. And when they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he said, well, what took you so long? No, that's not what it says. That was a, that was a joke. That's why it was hilarious. What it, listen closely to what it actually says. Then the Israelites cried out to God for help. This is after seven years. After seven years, Israelite, Israel cried out to God for help. And when they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent. The Lord sent. He sent a prophet. He sent an angel. He sent deliverance. He sent. Regardless of how far away you feel from God right now, no matter how dark your days have become because of sin in your life, God hears you when you cry out to Him. This is the comfort we can receive from stories like this, that like we're never too far gone to turn back to God and say, we need you, I need you, I need your help. 
I want to come back. He's eager to hear and to respond. God hears you when you cry out. His ear is attentive. His heart is towards you. God is willing to save you. God hears us. And God has sent us more than a prophet and an angel. God has sent us Himself. God, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come to deliver us, to heal us, and to dwell among us both now and forever. What more could He do? That He Himself would come to dwell among us and lead us into life. Now Gideon had a choice to make. And we'll read about this more next week. But Gideon had a choice to make. What would he do next? Okay? The angels come like, hey, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. He could have clung to his pessimism. It's like, yeah, right. Whatever. Show me uh, some deliverance first, then I'll believe you. No. He had a choice to make. And so do we. What we do next is up to us. How will we respond to what God has done for us, what God has sent to us in Christ. What Gideon did next, it made history. And here's the deal. What we do next can make history too. So I pray that we prepare our hearts, that we would look expectantly into the story of Gideon, that we would uh, introspect, look at our own life. Look at our story. Look at our story of faithfulness and unfaithfulness, our story of worship and idolatry. I mean, find ourselves in this story so that we can uh, orient ourselves and how God might be at work among us here now. And guys, I can get excited about that, and I hope you can too. What we do next matters. What we do next can make history. So let's pray together. Father, we make our prayer today in the name of Jesus Christ, the one you sent to us to deliver us. God, we've far too often, just like Israel, we've been mired in our sin. We've been distracted and called aside by idolatry and unfaithfulness. Lord, strangely, we've become accustomed to living in fear, living with this sense that we're just far away from you and that you've maybe just abandoned us or forgotten us. And many of us are far too familiar with the wine press. far too familiar with what it's like to be uh, trudging through our days, trying to thresh our wheat in the worst place possible, mentally, physically, spiritually. Lord, I pray that today, here's the simple thing, I, I pray that we would all find the courage and the strength to do, that we'd have the strength and courage to just cry out, that we'd have the strength and courage to look to you and say, God, please come, deliver us. God, it's not the Midianites for us, but it is fear. It is anxious thoughts. It's doubts. It's feeling downtrodden. My sin has been marauding through my life for far too long. I've felt the consequence of that, and I'm so ready to be delivered. Man, I get it. I feel like Israel living in caves, just on the brink of starvation spiritually. And I need a time of refreshing. I need a time of... of uh, deliverance. And so, God, I pray that in Jesus Christ, you would deepen our faith, you'd raise our heads, get our attention, and, and help us to cry out to you, confident that you hear us and that you're eager and willing to save. Lord, I pray for my friends here, those who've been following after Jesus, maybe for a very long time, but they've found themselves mired, 
uh, maybe they've allowed some disobedience and some hard-heartedness to creep into their life and they feel pretty far away and it's been seven years since they really felt like you were with them. God, I pray that you give them a desire to know you deeper, to experience um, a new work in them. I also pray for my friends who've never followed Jesus. I pray that this message today would uh, uh, kindle something inside of them. Bring a new awareness that uh, Jesus has come. And Jesus uh, has accomplished something that has opened up the way to new life and that God has a plan for each of our lives. That He will do great, redemptive, restorative things in each of us if we are willing to go where He leads. So God, I lift all my friends up to You. And I pray that You'd hear our prayer today in the name of the One You sent to us, Jesus Christ. Here we're going to worship a bit more. And this is a time to sit with the Lord. Maybe this will be the first time in a long time you've looked up from the threshing of the wheat and the wine press and said, God, I want more. I want more in my life with you. Uh, this is not working. The, 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 the best pl laid plans that I had for my life have led me to this point of despair and feeling really far away and I want to come back home. Can you trust that He would hear you today? That His Holy Spirit is at work in this room and is willing to come close? The faithfulness of God we see in the story of Gideon is the same faithfulness of God that we can experience here at Hope and Anchor today. How great is that? So make the most of this opportunity. Sit with the Lord. Pray. If you need to grab someone nearby, maybe it's good to just say, hey, here's what's going on. Will you pray with me? Do that. Um, I'll be at the back of the room. I'd love to pray with you. But uh, you don't have to do this alone. Here is an opportunity to come back to the Lord, to hear Him speak, to invite Him to set you free. And I pray that you would make the most of this opportunity.